The president that was elected in November was inaugurated this past Friday. And most of you probably saw, he stood there in our nation's capital with his hand on the Bible. It was Abraham Lincoln's Bible. How cool is that? And he swore as he took the oath of office. His hand was on the book that's been used many times before to bring in our country's president. That hand on that Bible, Abraham Lincoln's Bible, reflects a belief for many that the leader ought to be centered, that the leader ought to say what he believes is true. And this man with his hand on Abraham Lincoln's Bible took this oath of office to be our next president. This book, the Bible, I tell you often, is the best-selling book of all time. Now, it's been banned and burned but it, more than any other book, but it's more beloved than any other book. And in this book, this best-selling book of all time, this best-selling book each and every year, it's full of stories, stories that inspire you, stories that instruct you. It's full of famous stories. And one of the most famous stories, the story of David and Goliath, I preach to you today. I do so with a little bit of intimidation because you've heard the story before. You know it. It's sort of like Easter. Y'all kind of know what I'm going to say. But here's a story that so many are familiar with. Everybody in the room has some idea of. But I want to submit to you that it's a story that's misunderstood. And it's a story that's misunderstood for a couple of reasons. Number one, we misplace ourselves in the story. And number two, we miss the main point of the story. Let me give you an example of misplacement. The Atlantic Monthly, pre-election, August 23rd, 2016. If Trump wins, David will have slain the media giant. Okay, so Trump is David? Huffington Post, September 18th, pre-election, 2016. Trump is coming. He is a giant. He aims to fight us, we're David, and win. He always wins. We need to be afraid. The odds are mightily in his favor. Wait, so Trump is Goliath. We misplace ourselves in this story. What's the main point? Is the main point that God's going to help you slay the giants in your life? Is it the bigger they are, the harder they fall? Is it always cheer for the underdog? Is it, I still can't believe state lost to South Alabama? What's the main point of this story? And why do we read into it like we do? We're preaching this not because of any presidential election or political climate. We're preaching it because we're in a series called The Flawed Hero. I promised you last week as we looked at David the shepherd that we're going to look this week at David the warrior. And if you're going to look at David the warrior, you're going to go to the story of David and Goliath. I submitted to you in preaching last week that David is the central character of the Old Testament. He's mentioned over 600 times in the Old Testament. And the one that's mentioned the most in the Old Testament is the one who's mentioned the last in the new. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. Jesus is the bright and morning star. He's the root and descendant of who? Of David. One of the, almost, the, almost the last verse in our Bibles. David, more than any other Old Testament character, foreshadows Jesus. He's a central character. We see a brave shepherd. We see a talented musician, a fierce and formidable warrior. We see the greatest king in in Israel's history. And we see, as I said, the one who foreshadows Jesus. I told you last week that I wanted to introduce you to David like the Bible does. So you opened up your Bible or... uh, 
tuned in on your tablet to 1 Samuel 16 and we walked through, we read it together, 1 Samuel 16. And there we see, we see the background. We see a nation called Israel and surrounding them were people who were fierce, people who were uh, in many ways violent, and people who themselves had a king. And Israel for so long, they were led by judges. You can read the book of Judges. You can see the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And you can see good years and bad years. And you can see economic prosperity. And you can see people turning against each other and forgetting about God. It was judges. And then Israel says, I want a king. Like an adolescent, they're like, everybody else has got a king. We want a king. Introduce King Saul, who ended up not being a good king. He was inaugurated. He took an oath of office, but he thought it was about himself. He was a leader and ego ran amok and he forgot about God. And so we're introduced in the background of this story to a man named Samuel. And Samuel is motivated by the vision of his godly mother, Hannah. And Samuel says, we need to find a king, a king like mama wants, a king that's a godly man that loves God and teaches about him and that that will teach our nation about God and how to love God and experience the love of God, that will teach our nation uh, and use his power to bless and serve the people, to love the downtrodden, to bring justice where there is injustice and to not forget those that society forgets about. We want a godly king. We want a king that's not like Saul. So they go on a look and God tells Samuel, hey, stop grieving. First Samuel 16, 1, stop grieving over Saul. Some of you need to hear that today. You've experienced a loss. You're grieving over something. Don't let your past defeats affect your future. Stop grieving. That's good to grieve. It's good to grieve. There's a season to grieve. But stop, God says, Samuel, stop and fill your horn with oil and go to Bethlehem. Sound familiar to anybody? Go to Bethlehem to look for a king. And the instructions were that you would go to Bethlehem and you would meet a man named Jesse. And Jesse has a bunch of sons. And of Jesse's tribe, of his clan of boys, you will find a king. And we looked last week like Cinderella trying to fit herself into uh, the slipper, right? The sisters trying to fit themselves. The brothers here are like, am I the king? Am I the king? And they're paraded before Samuel. Samuel says, no. No, Eliab and uh, Shema and the, uh, Abinadab and these, these brothers. No, that's not him. But tall, impressive, uh, scholarly, amazing, all the external features. Just, I mean, total, not like me, total package. Just somebody that's crazy impressive when you look at them, right? Walk into a room and you just go, wow. No, 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 not, not him, not him, not him, not him. And in that, we, we put a verse before you last week. It was our verse of the week, and it's a verse that you probably know, 1 Samuel 16, 7. It's a contrast between you and God. You're not God. You're not like God. I'm not God. I'm not like God. How does God look? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. I went to a Kentucky basketball game Tuesday night. That's all I did for two hours. I looked at their height and their appearance. Impressive. These guys look like they've had some orthopedic surgeon extend their limbs, legs, and arms. Just really impressive Kentucky basketball. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Could it be? Could it be that God would choose the least likely, the youngest son, the shepherd boy? God chooses what we wouldn't and works in ways that we couldn't. And we see this. We look at the outside. 
Did anybody watch the inauguration and the ball and this party and that party? It was dizzy. I couldn't keep up with it all. But I just remember even CNN was talking about Ivanka and Melania and Tiffany and what they were wearing. Just on, like the outside, the outside, the outside, the adornment. And that's what we do. That's what we do. But that's not what God does. He doesn't look the way we look. He doesn't see what we see. And can I just say on one hand, that's really good news. And on the other hand, that could be bad news. Let me tell you what I mean. It's for some of you, you've been, you're living under the pressure and the stress of trying to impress people. And that's a hard, heavy weight. And you need to be free. First Samuel 16, 7 in the story of David, the shepherd boy, that's, 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 it should free you of that. God's not impressed with that. The stuff you're, the scaffolding of your life, He's not impressed with that. That's not what he's looking for. That's good news, isn't it? Like, let's breathe and let's be free. Let's live differently. But on one hand, it's bad news because you have to ask yourself the question, do I have the heart that God is looking for? 1 Samuel 16, again from last week, we see this great phrase, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. David, I think, the greatest songwriter and composer of all time. Look at the book of Psalms. So many of them written by him. Look at the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. When David says the Lord is my shepherd, what is he saying? He's saying, I am a sheep. I think because David knew he was a sheep, he became a great king. He knew his limits. That was part of his greatness. That's how God worked in him. Do you have room? Do you have room for God? Do you have room to see yourself as God sees you? David became a great king because I think he knew that he was a sheep. What do sheep need? They need constant care. They need attention. I have a friend in Fondren, his name is Durden. His name is Durden Pillow. That's just a great name. And Durden met, like, he was one of 15 people through these five and a half years that met his spouse at Fondren Church. And they got married, and they had a baby. And I didn't see him for a few weeks, a couple of months, because that's what happens when you have a baby, right? You go into seclusion. And I saw Durden in October at our fall festival in the Fondren Park. And I said, Durden, man, how is it? Tell me about fatherhood. And Durden, had a, he had a little sermon in his back pocket. He preached me a sermon. He goes, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. In one word. I'm like, woof, one word. He said, in one word. Here's my word for parenting. Here's my word for being the dad of a newborn. Constant. Constant. Constant joy. Constant fatigue. Constant love. Constant need. Constant. 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 You do one thing, but you got to do it again. You do it again. You got to do it again. You do it again. It's constant. It's constant. Robert is constant. I said, bro, you may need to come see me constantly but it was just one word it's constant when you're a sheep like a newborn infant you are completely utterly dependent on a big person in your life and a sheep needs a shepherd some of you this weekend I believe I believe the news broke widespread through social media on Thursday night Um, we text about it my wife and I 
But, man, I, I read Bruce Cameron's a Dog's Journey and A Dog's Purpose, and I thought I was going to take our whole staff team. You all know how I feel about dogs, right? And I was going to take our whole staff team and go see, go see the movie, and apparently we're not going now. Because there was a, there was a I think we're supposed to pro, protest the movie? We're supposed to protest the movie. We don't take hard lines at Fonder Church, but I don't think you're supposed to see the movie. If that changes, I'll let you know. But they, hey, seriously, and not to offend animal lover sensibilities, I'm one, but did you see this, the German Shepherd that they were forcing into the hot, raging waters to film the movie. And this German Shepherd, a pathetic spectacle, a sad display. This dog didn't want to go in the waters they were forcing him to. And it's just a sad scene of this animal abuse. And you see the clip. Anybody see this clip? Shake your hand. Help me. I don't want to be alone. You saw it. Okay. You see this poor animal and you say, no, don't protect them, love them. And here's what I want to tell you. A sheep needs constant protection. A sheep will walk off a cliff. A sheep will go into rage. They just don't know. And David, this great leader, this flawed hero we're saying in this series, realized he needed a shepherd. And here's what I love about it. We looked at it last week. Man, I'm doing some recapping from last week. And we, we said the wilderness, the shepherd boy, it was preparation, not punishment. Sometimes when you're going through the waiting and the working and the learning, the monotony and the obscurity, God's working, and it's not for punishment. It's for your preparation. And David, this one who was prepared, he had a harp. Thank God, because we've got beautiful songs and music in the book of Psalms. Because he had a harp, and he had a slingshot, which will come in handy later. But in the monotony and the obscurity of being a shepherd boy, he learned skill and character to be a leader. Hear that again. In the monotony and obscurity of being a shepherd boy, he learned character and skill necessary to become a leader. In fact, one of my favorite Bible verses on leadership, young people, attend to this. Psalm 78, verse 72. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Just as we focus people on outward appearance, we tend to focus even in the church. I might even say, especially in the church. I watch one pastor after the other fall. It's a tough profession I'm in. Do you ever pray for me? Do you ever pray for me? Okay. Please do. But we elevate character. I'm sorry, we elevate skill over character. But you know you need both. You know God's given you a skill. He's gifted you. Find out, find out what you do and do that thing and hone it and mold it and shape it. Let God do that and then let that be a blessing, not to your ego, but to the world, to your family, to, to your church, to Fondren Church, to this community. What do you do? You need a skill. God's given you a skill. Hone it and use it. But more important that and wedded with that is character. I pray that for me. I pray that for our leaders. I think, I think we had one of the best meetings. I'm looking at Laura and Jeff and Van on the front row. But I think we had one of the best meetings in our church's short history, Monday night. We met up on the third floor. We talked about our future. We talked about what it would look like to be the church that God wants us to be. And we prayed together and we talked through some things. And we aligned ourselves. And one of the things I think of with this talented group of people is that he would allow us and help us elevate and care for our character. Because it matters. God chooses the youngest son, the least likely, the shepherd boy, because he had been preparing him. 
And so this shepherd we see in 1 Samuel 16 becomes the warrior in 1 Samuel 17. So here's what I want you to do. I want you for just a few moments to trust the preacher. All right? What I'm going to ask you to do is just keep looking up at me and not to look at your Bible. I know that sounds tough, but I want you to read it later. Last week, we turned to 1 Samuel and read it together. But to read all of 1 Samuel 17, it would take about 15 minutes. So what I want to do is read a bulk of it as we go, highlighting some things. And maybe that will encourage you. It will raise some questions that I will not answer today. And you will learn as you read it and study it on your own. 1 Samuel 17, the first line of it says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Who were the Philistines? They were a people living also in the land of Cana, but they were not supposed to be. That was given by God to the Israelites. It was to be their land for this season, but the, but the Philistines were there. Why? Because they were strong. Have you ever noticed strong people can kind of force themselves on you? They're just strong. There's just a, a brute nature to the Philistines. And they wielded that power. And this is, a, the Philistines are those strong people. The period is known as the Iron Age, and the Philistines were technologically advanced. You're thinking, technologically advanced? Well, they were for the Iron Age. They were the first civilization to begin working with the metals, the metals that were used to shape weaponry, the metals of bronze and iron. The Philistines led that, and that's why, in a moment you'll see, when we read 1 Samuel 17 and we learn about Goliath, he looks like Robocop. 4 to 10 in 1 Samuel 17. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. They're doing what scholars and historians call representative battle. And representative battle is kind of a cool idea. I mean, we've got to enter into the violence of this story. But a representative battle is cool because the idea there, instead of widespread bloodshed, instead of a lot of people losing their lives, you get a man, we get a man, man on man. I kind of laugh at this because isn't it like so many Hollywood movies? I mean, how many Hollywood movies have you gone to see where it's so-and-so fighting against so-and-so? It's, a, it's an idea, ideology. It's this group or that group, and it ends up in a, you know, a, a basement or a rooftop or out in the field, and it's hand-to-hand guerrilla warfare. It's one man on another man. And the key here of a representative battle is you have to have a representative from both sides. You got, as the kids say or used to say, somebody's got to represent. And obviously, the Philistines had somebody to represent, but what about the Israelites? Who would stand up for them in this representative battle? And David rose, sometimes you just feel powerful, you go. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. I love that. David left the sheep with the keeper. He, hey, y'all, he got a babysitter. Isn't that cute? And it says he came to the battle line. Notice 
It says the battle line, not the battle, not the battle, but the battle line. I picture in my mind a seventh grade dance and the girls are on one side and the boys are on the other. And it's not a dance. It could be a dance, but it's just sort of a line. It's like two groups looking at each other, whispering and talking and wondering and hoping and fearing or whatever, right? It's purgatory is what it is at that age. But anyway, it's just this, it's a line. It's, it's not a battle. It's just a battle line. And then we read about the war cry. Now, here it is. This is why we go to seminary. Preachers know what you don't know, so I'm going to tell you. It's not in the Bible, but it's true. Here was the war cry, okay? Israel said, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And the Philistines responded by saying, um, we got Goliath. Who steps up for Israel? And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. In other words, he's trash talking. And like any good trash talker, he keeps talking trash. David heard him. That's a key phrase, if you know the heart of David. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David asked two questions. The first question is, hey, what's the reward? Now, what does it tell you? If you show up somewhere and you know there's a battle or something important, let's say a game, and you ask, hey, what do we win here? What's that say about you? Think about it. That probably implies that you're saying there's a chance. Not like Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber chance, but like a legitimate chance. You're saying there's a chance. Hey, what's the reward? If if I show up and go, hey, what, what do I win? Like I went skeet shooting with Jeff several months ago. There were 52 clay, whatever you call them, clay skeets that we shot at. And he was good. I mean, a really good marksman. He's from Summit. And I shot one out of 52. One. I didn't show up saying, hey, what do, what's the reward? What do I win today? Because there was no shot. I wasn't going to win. I had one. But when you ask what's the reward, you're thinking, all right. And what is the reward? Let me explain that for you. The reward is this. Riches, the king's hot daughter, no taxes. That's it. But these guys, think about it, fellas, even fellas. What good is riches? What's good is marrying the king's hot daughter? And what good is being tax-free if you're dead? No good. Last time I checked, dead people are all dead people are tax-free. What's the reward? Well, David is wondering, but notice how he talked about Israel. He realized it was bigger. It wasn't about the reward. That was his first question. What's the reward? Second question, who is this man? David heard, listen to me, David grew up in a godly family. David had a family that taught him about God from an early age. David loved God. David knew God loved him. So when he hears someone taunting that God, he heard it. He didn't sit and hear it. I mean, he heard it. 
Women, you know how you want your husbands to like hear you, but they just sort of hear you? I mean, David heard these words. And something rose up in him. Next. Now, Eliab, remember him? He's the eldest brother from 1 Samuel 16. He heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled. Against who? Come on, Eliab. Against David. And he said, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Isn't that true of human nature? When you criticize someone, you always question their goodness. You're always like, I mean, you just make assumptions. And we know David got a babysitter. But this guy, the elder brother, is like, you're too young. And you're not doing your job. Get back out there. He made bad assumptions. That's what bitter people do. And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. How do you deal with a bitter person in your life? Here's the older brother who's still sulking over the fact that he wasn't chosen. Young people. God's preparing you guys for something. He's calling you out to lead, and you will have opposition. Is this kind of awkward when I just look at y'all? He's calling you out for something. But you will have opposition. Every good endeavor. And you know what hurts the most? I think you can, in your future, you can deal with it when there's the Goliath, when there's Robocop yelling things, defying God. I mean, what insults God more, Goliath's defiance or Israel's unbelief? What, what hurts God more, angry atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hutchins writing these best-selling books or bitterness right in here? What insults God more? And here we see David called to something noble and worthy. And people, isn't it true that the, what hurts us the most is the opposition from God's people? Trying to make air quotes, I better do two. From God's people. That's what hurts most. Next. And David said, What have I done now? <laughs> if there's any question in this whole narrative that I can relate to, it's that. Don't talk. What have I done now? I've been saying that since my childhood. What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, looking for support, looking for something counter, and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Not just one who opposes you, but several. So in the story, you see Goliath, blasphemous, with faith in himself. And you see Israel, these so-called leaders and friends, and they've got no faith. And you see David, faith in God. Can you have faith in God when there's so much opposition? When so many bitter people are against you. Next. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. Remember, he's the bad king. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Oh, I love this. If you ever have spiritual amnesia, this is just huge. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. 
And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard. That's something you'll want to study later. Lions and bears with beards. And struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and let the Lord be with you. I confess of my own spiritual amnesia. And as God is calling us to new frontiers and new things and new endeavors, I want to shrink back and I let bitter people have their sway in me. And I listen too much to opposition. And I forget there's, whatever giant is in front of me, and some of us have giants, whatever giant is in front of me, sometimes I forget the lions and the bears that God has slayed in my past. You ever read the Bible like I do and you're like, oh, what a miracle, what a miracle, that's cool. And then they forget, then they become hard-hearted and stiff-necked and they forget. You're like, what's up? Come on, review the tape. But we forget. And you know what they say, if you spot it, you got it. That's me. That's me. I forget some things that God has done in my life. Now, let me, let me be real. Some of you, there's no track record of God working in your life. You haven't invited him into your life. You haven't made a decision. You haven't placed your faith in him. But for some of you, you have, and you have seen God work, and somebody needs to hear it today. Somebody, you could be in the balcony, and you need to hear this today. God loves balcony people too. God has worked in your past. And you're letting what's in front of you, you're, you're, you're forgetting that. And what I love about David, I'm sorry I get choked up, but here's this young shepherd boy going, man, here's what he's done. And because of what he's done, I know what he can do. Next. And then we'll need to cue the Rocky music during this stretch. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go. It's never easy. Is it ever easy? For he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. You can only trust what you test. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook. By the way, I heard a sermon on David and Goliath. And the preacher went to, you know, the five stones. This stone means the word. And this stone means the prayer. And this stone. I'm like, that's so stupid. Like that. I mean, that's just stupid. Do you know what these stones represent? You ready? Stones. If your version says rocks, you know what the rocks represent? Rocks. That's all. Nothing more. There's no prescription for living. Don't, don't be cute and creative. That's our problem. It just, it's, a, it's not a prescription for you and I. It's a description of what David did. He got these rocks. All right. Sorry. He took these stones from the brook and put them in, in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his head. You get this right. Going into battle against Robocop with a shepherd's pouch. Pouch. It's just fun to say. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Okay, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Nobody wants to die, right? Nobody wants to die. If you die, when you die, you need to die with dignity. You don't like the thought of vultures 
Okay, never mind. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Play the rocky music. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David is saying, I take your birds of the air, and I raise it one severed cranium. Next. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Little Dr. Seuss there. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. They started singing, Flow Rada. Welcome to our house. Baby, we can go out. We don't need to And they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shechem as far as Gath and Ekron. Victory. Now, before we close... This familiar story that I say that we misunderstand. Why? Because if you're note taker, look down. Because we misrepresent ourselves in the story. And secondly, we don't understand the main object of the story. Do you got that? So let me quickly, real quick, I want to tell you four lies that you and I wrongly believe. Here are the lies. You are unique. Sounds good, doesn't it? You probably want to go to a church that will tell you you are unique. But if you do take notes... And God loves you more if you do. Write down at the side of that, James 5, 17. And it says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was just like, now, okay, you're unique, right? Fingerprints, DNA, right? Which is really cool to think about, but also be reminded it could link you to a crime. Okay? You are unique. Why would, I mean, let's meet later, but take your Bible and show me where there's any example of God elevating you above other people. And even when he calls out, now he does call people out and he, you know, sanctifies people and he says he loves us and we're special, but don't believe this. You are unique. There's nobody like you. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. David was a man with a nature like ours. And isn't it why we love David, the flawed hero? What if it was a sermon series called David, the superhero? I can't relate you can't relate. We're not that unique. You're not unique. Don't believe that. There's a snippet of truth, but don't fall for it. You are your appearance. First Samuel 16, 7. God looks at what? Not the outward appearance, but the heart. First Peter 3. If you're a young lady, write this verse down. If you're a parent of a young lady, write this verse down. I hope my daughter learns this. I hope she subscribes to this. First Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. First Peter 3, 3 and 4. It tells us what real beauty is. You are your appearance. Third lie, you are your job. What was David? Doctor, lawyer, CEO, fat cat. He was a shepherd boy. You were not your job. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, in a parable, he said, man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You are not your job, no matter the pay scale. 
Another lie we believe, you have to chase your dreams. That sounds good. You have to chase your dreams. Here's the trouble. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to come and be my disciple, they have to die to themselves, take up their cross, and daily follow me. Die to yourself, take up the cross, and daily follow me. That's a little different, and I'm so glad that Jesus didn't follow his dream. I'm glad Jesus heard the call of the Father and knew what the world needed. And I'm glad of that for Paul. Jesus didn't sign up for the cross. Paul didn't sign up to be shipwrecked and stoned and ultimately die in prison. David didn't sign up for a lot of these things. But I'm glad they heard God's call. And I'm glad they saw the need of the world. And they didn't make it about themselves. So these lies and lies like them, we read into the story. So here's what I'm getting at today. How many of you at church today say... I want to be David. Like, don't you want to be David? And don't you want to go to a church where the preacher says you're David? Because then you can face all your giants and win because God's on your side. Now, note takers and young people and people in seminary, you're probably going to get this if you haven't before. But write down, and I'm almost done, write down 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And then write down Luke 24, 44. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and Luke 24, 44. Just something important about the meta-narrative story of the Bible. Because you have a story, right? And I have a story. And where does our story fit in to the grander story? That's really important. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 makes me smile because it talks about the Old Testament. It says, these things were written to be an example to you. That's really simple. So we can go to the Old Testament. For example, I could go to this story and I could say, well... Here's where I am, and this is what I can learn, because I am facing a giant or two in my life. And guess what? I want to win. So these things were written to be an example to us. So read the old and learn from the old, because it's an example. But look what Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, not now, but later, because you wrote it down. Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, hey, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, these things, they point to me. Listen to me, church. Find Jesus. Find Jesus in every story. Find Jesus in every story, and then you'll learn where you intersect with the grandest story of all. A true story. A freeing story. An emboldening, empowering, inspiring story. Oh, did I mention that it's true? So here we are. There are three truths. You are Israel. Jesus is David. And Goliath is our greatest enemy. You are in a field and you are afraid. You are in a fight and you think you have a plan and you had a plan and then you devised another plan and you, then you called somebody smart called a consultant and they brought you a plan and then you got a team of consultants and then you redefined success and you brought in some more consultants and you revised your plan and you set forth this different plan, but you haven't won and no plan of yours will ever win. And you are Israel in need of somebody to fight for you. You need somebody from the outside to fight the battle that you can't win. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. And Jesus has fought for you. 
And I do not know every battle that you face. If I'm your friend and I'm your pastor and we work together, we live together, we talk or we meet up, you can tell me your story as I tell you some of mine. And I will pray for victory in those little many narratives of your life. I want lions and bears to be slain so you can face giants of your future. But just know Jesus is David. He's the one who's fought for you. And our greatest, our Goliath is our greatest enemy. What is our greatest enemy? It's our separation from God. And we fight a host, a myriad of other sub-enemies, but the greatest enemy that you and I have is our separation from God. And that's the victory that Jesus has fought and won for you, and you don't have to lift a finger. Woo! You know, somebody in the 930 said amen, and I closed it down right then. But none of you said amen. We've got, we've got a lot of stuff we need to unpack in this story. Amen on unpacking more? Leave with this. Think about this. Because there's a lot of bad preachers and a lot of bad theology and a lot of books that are bad, but they're bestsellers. And here's what, if I stand up here and preach this cheer for the underdog, you're the underdog, it's God's going to get you and everybody else is the enemy, you're going to end up disappointed. And you're going to be Eliab and you're going to be bitter. And you're going to turn on me. And I'm going to see you at Kroger and you're going to give me some other excuse of why you don't come to church. But you're just bitter. Because God's not, he's not going to be fashioned into the deity that you want. And the story is not about you. And here's the thing. My greatest enemy, listen, my greatest enemy has been defeated. I don't even have to fear death. And I have to fight a battle every day. I fear approval of people. I don't have to, I don't have to fight that battle. Jesus has fought that for me. And you may approve of me and you may not. And you may, come, you may criticize me and I might need that criticism. It could be helpful. Somebody may turn on me. Somebody may leave Fonda Church. Somebody may not like me anymore. Somebody may talk bad about me. I don't really have to worry about all those things. Those things aren't my God. Jesus loves me and approves of me. And he's fought the greatest battle. And I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear disapproval of others. I can walk in that victory. Somebody say amen and I'm done. There you go. You're learning. Let's pray.